listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. How you doing? Good, good. All right, and my name's Aaron Stern. Uh, if you don't know that, then um, hello. Um, I'm the Mill Pastor, and uh, every Sunday morning we have Mill Sunday School. And uh, the reason we have Mill Sunday School is we believe that it's important to really get a, uh, a an idea of what it means to walk with God in regards to some basic principles of Christianity. And so what we've done is we've taken the a year's schedule and picked out some ideas that we think are really important for some foundations in walking with God. And so we've picked ideas like what is the Bible all about and how do you apply the Bible. We've talked about uh, things like what is who's Jesus and what does this mean? Who's the Holy Spirit and what is that all about? Who is what's the Old Testament? Just in a in a month, and each of these each of these topics are broken up into each month, and so so that's kind of how we how this goes for a year. Uh, but several different months throughout the year, we take uh, we we just have elect what we call an elective month, and uh, and so it kind of gives us some freedom to choose some things that we. Uh, might think would be specifically relevant or applicable in that particular moment. And so so for the month of of, um, December, we've picked the idea of just some relevant topics uh, to Christianity and walking with God. And so uh, um, this week we have one of my dear friends, actually. Uh, Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you might know him. Um, His name is Patton Dodd. And Patton and I have been great friends for many years. Uh, We went to college together for a short time. And, uh, uh, but Patton is probably one of the smartest guys that I know. And I enjoy so much hanging out with Patton because, uh, he really challenges me in my thought process. Um, and he is in the, in the final stages of finishing his dissertation. So, uh, if he comes again, we'll have to refer to him as Dr. Dodd. And so, uh, if you guys would welcome my friend, Patton Dodd. Hi, everybody. So if I talk like this, you can hear me fine. It's not too loud or anything. Okay. I used to do, I used to teach um, college, a college class in Boston, at Boston University when I was doing graduate school there. And then I had, while I was in Boston, I had a book come out um, that was a memoir, and I went around and spoke about it uh, for probably a year off and on. And so I was kind of exercised at this for a while, but it's been, for the last three years, I've been mostly in my basement. Um, writing and in coffee shops and so i'm not really used to being around people or especially in front of people so if i bump into things and knock things over or fall off the stage if i annoy you in any way feel free to throw orange juice at me or do whatever and we can work together on getting through this today okay so um the first thing i'm going to do this morning is read two stories to you and then we're going to talk about them a little bit after i'm done so think while I read, even though you don't know what we're going to be talking about, and I'm going to ask for some feedback once I get through them. The first story you've heard before, it's from a book called Genesis, which is the first book in a book called the Bible, and Genesis begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. 
And God made the firmament and separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. And the rhythm of this first chapter keeps going. This is the first of two creation narratives in Genesis. This one ends at what we now know as chapter 2, verse 4, and then another one begins. And then this one, as you probably know, we get this kind of rhythm. God says, things come into being. He creates dry land. He creates vegetation on the third day. He creates a light for the night and a light for the day. He creates uh, living creatures to fly in the air, to swim in the sea, and to cover the earth. And then at the very end, verse 26, which, and I, really, I want you to remember this first because I'll come to it um, at, the, uh, at the end of our talk today. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Okay, so that's story number one. Genesis 1. Story number two is from today's newspaper. It's called 10 Moments That Shaped the Season, and it's another kind of creation narrative. It's about the creation of a really awful season from the Denver Broncos that is either going to end today or um, prolong for one more week, and then it'll end after that. Um, It's by Frank Schwab. It starts like this. Many Denver Bronco players, coaches, and fans are wondering about how the AFC West title came to this. The Broncos had a three-game lead with three to play. Yet the division will be decided today when, San- when Denver faces San Diego in Qualcomm Stadium. The winner goes to the playoffs while the loser goes home. Here are ten plays that change the landscape of the division race. Number one, he calls it Southern Hospitality. With 17 seconds left in the first half of its December 14th game against Carolina, Denver had the ball at its 18-yard line. Instead of going into halftime trailing 17-10, Broncos running back Selvin Young fumbled, and the Panthers got a momentum-turning field goal on the last play of the half and went on to win 30-10. Number two, tough calls. Two calls irked the Broncos in their October 12th loss to the Jaguars. First cornerback, cornerback Dre Bly was flagged for illegal contact after he was run over by Jacksonville receiver Reggie Williams on third and 17 and so on and so forth. And all these details about things that went wrong with the Broncos season. Okay, so which of these stories is true? And in what way are these stories true? Are they true in the same way, or are they true in different ways? What's the nature of the truth that we see in Genesis, and what's the nature of the truth that we see in a newspaper article? Complicated question? No, go ahead. All right, I'm going to write this down. Genesis, absolute. And you said the news was what? Perspective. Perspective. 
Jacksonville would think otherwise, and so it's, it was, explain what you mean by that. So people who read this can't, there's really, there's no disagreeing with Genesis 1 is what you're saying, but there is disagreeing with this newspaper article. Okay, other thoughts? How is Genesis, how do we read Genesis differently than we read a newspaper article in terms of the way that we understand what it's telling us? Think about authorship. This guy... Uh, Frank Schwab wrote this article. And we don't know exactly who wrote Genesis. Some people believe Moses wrote it. There's all kinds of traditions of authorship. But how do we understand the perspective of the person and the role that authorship plays in the writing of these two different pieces? Other thoughts? Right. Yeah, dead author. That's a big, that's a really important point. Alive author, hopefully. Unless he had a bad night last night. Any other thoughts? This little exercise of thinking about the difference between the truth in a newspaper article and another kind, any other kind of writing and the truth of a book like the Bible or any of the sacred text has occupied the imaginations and the careers, um, the thought life of a lot of people for the last couple hundred years. Um, scholars have devoted you know, their whole careers to thinking about these questions, especially in the modern era, which is about the last couple hundred years. With the rise of modern science and with... Um, the rise of new kinds of textual study of old books like the Bible, people began to look at them and examine them in ways that they, had, they never really had before. They had looked at the text closely and questioned the truth of it, um, but there was a more production of these kinds of questions in the last couple, couple hundred years, especially because of things, something like Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution presents a story of the history of the earth that's different from this story. And so people began to wonder, um, how do we evaluate the Bible and the received wisdom of the Bible in light of new things that we know or that we think that we know about the world? Archaeological digs that either prove or disprove, either contest or validate um, the histories of the Middle East that we read in the Bible, um, and all other kinds of issues. For a lot of people, these kinds of questions um, are are merely academic, and there's consensus around them within communities. There is no consensus around these issues, uh, around the truth of the Bible, the truth of evolution in a broad sense, but there is definitely consensus about these issues in communities. The scientific community that that works and that are professional scientists largely um, question the truth of something like Genesis 1. They may see it as true in some grand way, but in terms of the way that they 
produce biological science, um, it's not really under consideration for them anymore. Um, evolution is the basis of a lot of biological research, including for a lot of Christians who are scientists, um, like Francis Collins, who is uh, one, of the, one of the world's leading geneticists. He was the head of the Human Genome Project that, that um, mapped the human DNA. And he, is, um, he would be a Darwinian evolutionist. He's also a conservative Christian, an evangelical Christian. John Polkinghorne, one of the world's leading quantum physicists, is also a, um, a Christian. But um, in terms of his scientific work, a lot of it is based not on this, but on um, the uh, working theories of evolution. Um, but within more conservative Christian communities, Evolution is not really, there may be some theistic evolution, but a lot of, within more conservative places, Genesis is read as history um, and as science. Um, and it is seen to compete with um, Darwinian evolution. And the earth is seen to be, you know, eight or 10,000 years old. And this is authoritative for scientific questions as well as religious questions. Well, for a lot of people, again, these questions are, are merely academic. They're what shape their careers and their, and their lives. Even those who are Christians sometimes can look at these claims and evaluate them and weigh them without them um, really coming into conflict with their personal lives. For other people, these kinds of questions are, uh, can be very troubling. They can inspire doubt. They can lead to a kind of questioning that is debilitating and that is a hard road of trying to figure out what's true here. How do I know who's correct? How do I trust one authority over another? If, with Frank Schwab's article, we can call Frank, and, uh, if he's not dead, and ask him, um, why did you decide to put the piece together in this way, right? Why did you decide to lead the article with this way? How did you come up with these 10 ways that the Broncos messed up their season? Um, and how would other teams see this differently? We could compare his article against what the Denver Post is saying this morning about the same material and weigh one against the other. So we could do a very easy job of fact-checking and seeing if anyone has their facts wrong. We can't do that with the Bible. The author's dead. We don't know who the author was. Um, there's lots of debate about who the author was, whether it was male or female, when it was written, all that kind of stuff. And so that kind of analysis isn't really possible for us. Um, and so, again, some of these questions, for some people, lead to uh, a real kind of debilitating questioning. I'm definitely in that latter category. Early on in my faith, these kinds of questions captivated me, and then they bullied me, and they made it very difficult for me to believe. The Genesis issue isn't hard for me anymore because I feel like I've worked through it to a, a place that is sustainable and that I understand my perspective on it. Um, and um, can live with that. But there are lots of other kinds of questions about the Bible and its truth and its apparent contradictions and Christian history, things that have gone wrong, the way church culture is organized and how helpful or unhelpful that is. These kinds of questions, for me, have plagued me and plagued my faith life and have um, generated a lot of doubt. Doubting God, self-doubt, doubting my own experience of Christianity um, for most of my Christian life. And that's really what I want to talk with you about this morning, is dealing with doubt and the ways doubt can sideline and marginalize you and your faith and, um, and how to get through it. Um, 
in uh, the Anglican church that I go to. I go to a, a church called Holy Trinity Anglican that meets just up the road here. And for those of you who don't know, Angl- Anglicanism is kind of like Catholicism in a lot of ways, it, you know, without the Pope and without the veneration of Mary. Um, and it's structured in different ways. But in terms of our worship style, it's very Catholic, which is to say we have a Mass, and uh, every week we have a, a, a lit- liturgical worship, very structured and orderly worship where we say a lot of the same prayers every week. My favorite moment every week, um, just before the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper, um, we uh, make a confession of sins. We start with a very kind of personal, short, reflective time to confess individual sins silently. And then we make a corporate confession of sins. Believers and daughters alike, we all share a deep need, for we are all lost without your grace. And then it goes on, give us true repentance, forgive us all our wrongs, etc. Well, the moment in this that always captures me is as we come before you now, believers and daughters alike. It's meant, it was written that way in order to include people who might be in the congregation and on, on any given Sunday who aren't believers yet, who haven't crossed over from doubt to faith. But for me, that phrase, believers and daughters alike, just describes me. It describes how I feel about my faith life a lot. It's, it, just, it describes the main sin issue that I feel like I struggle with, a lack of trust. Um, it describes the experience of being Christian for me. It wasn't always this way for me. When I first became a Christian, I became a Christian here at New Life in the back rows of the old auditorium when I was 18, 19, or 20 years old. It's hard for me to, to pinpoint it because it was a kind of a gradual process. Uh, my sister, Casey, was very involved here. and I was in high school, and she, would, she knew that I was up to no good in my life, and she would for a long time encourage me and then um, force me to come to church with her. And uh, so I began to come more often than not, first late in high school and then early in college. My freshman year of college, I was at UCCS. And um, I knew that I believed, eventually I knew that I believed and that I wanted to be a part of what was happening here. I knew that the lives that were being lived by the people who came to this place every week were much richer and better than the life that I was living with, with my friends. Um, so at some point along the way, uh, what I do, do, do distinctly remember is being in a, being very stoned in a class at UCCS and deciding this is ridiculous. I mean, I couldn't concentrate. My notes didn't make any sense. And I thought, I, lo- I realized I love going to new life more than I love getting high and coming to class. And, and I want to really change. And so... I thought, this is it. I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm changing my life. And I went to the parking lot, and I sold the rest of my weed, which I realize now is an odd act. as a, a drug deal, the first act of, like, Christian consecration is very strange. At the time, it made sense to me. I was just getting rid of, getting rid of stuff. Um, and so, and I dove in. I dove in fully and completely, and... Um, I left a lot of my friends behind because I had to. I couldn't be around them and behave. And so I came here. And for the first year, I, um, I, it was just, it, it, I had that newfound zeal that a lot of new converts have, you know. And uh, I would wake up as early as possible every morning before class so that I could pray. I, I felt like I needed more and more time in prayer. And I needed more and more time to read the Bible. It was all new to me. And I would just read the scriptures for as long as I could. I would sing and dance in my room. I mean, I just, it was, it felt so good. Not just because it was new, 
but because I believed so strongly. I mean, I, I just I knew that there was a God. This was a, this was a, a new thought to me. Not, that, not the existence of God, but the fact that I could you know, have a, a coordination with him, a relationship with him, was a relatively new idea, and I hadn't practiced it, at least since early, early childhood. It had been a long time. And, um, and I just loved it, and I loved believing in him. And I continued to misbehave a little bit for that, for that first year. I'd bump into old friends every now and then and, and you know, succumb to temptations. But, um, so I had struggles, but not struggles in faith. Struggles in behavior, sanctification, but not struggles in, in faith. Because God was so evident to me. And the, tr- the truth of the scriptures was so plain to me. And, and I love that. Um, after my first year as a Christian, I transferred from UCCS to go to Oral Roberts University, where I met Aaron and um, a lot of other people. And it was a wonderful, it was, it was what I thought it would be. I, I wanted to be around other Christians. And I had never had like a youth group or anything in high school. And so I hadn't been around a lot of believers before. And so <clears throat> I felt like ORU oh, would be a chance for me to do that. And it was. I met a lot of wonderful people. And it was great to be around believers and be encouraging other, each other every day. Well, about six or seven months into my um, year at ORU, which I didn't know was just going to be a year, but for a variety of reasons it turned out that way, I was in chapel, and I loved being at chapel at ORU. And I was there, and I was praying, and I was on my knees, and I just had this, like, sense, sort of out of nowhere, a trickle of doubt that made me wonder whether we were all fools, whether we were um, deluded in some way. And it was just a moment, really. In the same way that I described faith kind of trickling in, I was coming to church and wasn't sure, and then suddenly it kind of gushed. Doubt happened the same way to me. At first, it was just this kind of instinct that I had that there were a lot of questions that needed to be answered in order for this to be sustainable for me. And I just wasn't sure. And I realized that I was, my faith was based on a lot of assumptions that I couldn't necessarily prove, and that began to worry me. Um, well, as I paid attention to these questions, they came one after the other. And before long, my whole life was marked by this doubt. And I'm 20, I guess, at this point, And this continued for me until my late 20s, until about three or four or five years ago. Um, uh, I was in Christian community. I had left ORU and went to Colorado State University. I stayed, for the most part, in Christian community up there. After college, I graduated and I came here to work for New Life. And so I was very involved um, in the church, but was constantly haunted by deep doubt from just a general sort of existential sense of wondering if there's really a God to very specific questions about the historicity of the Bible, the reliability of certain texts. Um, And uh, my life was marked in this way for a really long time. Um, I think that um, I'm trying to, I'm going to be careful actually not to use too much past tense because as I said, believers and daughters alike is still the phrase that kind of captures me in church every Sunday. Uh, My life is still marked in this way. I've come a long way um, and I have a different angle on issues of doubt than I used to. It's not beating me um, the way that I 
would have said it was for a long time. In fact, for until a few years ago, I used to wonder a lot about whether I would be a Christian when I was 35 or 40 or 50. Um, I had no idea. And now I feel very confident that I will be. Um, and I feel like I could defend my faith. I have a lot of good reasons for it. Um, uh, but this has been a major part of my life for a long time. Um, there are really three areas of doubt that that I've struggled with and that a lot of people struggle with that I want to outline for you very quickly and then talk about the lifelines that I've used to get through. There are emotional doubt, experiential doubt, and intellectual doubt. pretty simple to see what each of these mean. Emotional doubt is just the, you know, does God love me question, which is a a profound and important form of doubt and a form of doubt that a lot of uh, Christians or religious people um, struggle with. Um, How do I know that God loves me? There are parts of the Bible that where God seems very judgmental and harsh, Um, not nice. I don't know why we would expect God to be nice, but we do. And so we're often bothered by these, these texts where it's hard to see this love, this great encompassing love of God that we sing about every Sunday. And so how do I know for sure that God loves me? This is also a self-doubt. How do I know my own position before God? And how can I trust that, that it's true? How can I be secure? This is also, though, a form of doubt that you ask from within, you know, belief, from within believing in the sort of basics of Christianity. And so in that sense, it's a sort of more advanced Form of doubt. Experiential doubt is, is a kind of questioning about, this is an E, by the way. I know it doesn't look like an E. It looks like a hieroglyphic letter, but it's really an E. Um, that one is too. Um, so experiential doubt is uh, questioning, um, how, do I, how can I trust the experiences that I think that I've had as a Christian? Did I really speak in tongues, or did I force myself to make these noises? Did I get healed? Did I pray for someone to get healed? Did I know they got healed? Um, how can I be sure? These are, these are, you know, we question things well after they've happened. Did I feel the voice of God speak to my spirit? Or did I make that up? How did I discern that issue that I was questioning? In the moment, it felt right. I knew God ministered to me and spoke to me. But maybe a year later, as I, as I reflect on that experience, um, I'm not as sure anymore. This is especially true in and deeply pious. There, there are Christian um, circles that are more cerebral and, and um, I think to their loss, but they're more, they kind of keep faith up here. And then there are ca- all kinds of traditions, including ours, Pentecostal charismatic traditions, very mystical Catholic traditions, where experiences are a major deal, and, um, which is, I think, a wonderful thing and an important part of the Christian experience. But it can come with a lot of questioning later on. How do I know that I know that I know that what I experienced is true? And then there's intellectual doubt, which is, I think, underpins the other two and is definitely the main form that I've struggled with. How do I know that I know what I know? How can I prove it? What's empirical about my faith in God? What can I point to? What involves a leap of faith that I, something I can't prove? And then I just have to is the writer Kierkegaard said, reach out in the darkness for what I can't see and grab it anyway. Is that okay, or do I have to be able to really prove it? Um, One of the leading apologists of the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, 
he taught that you really need to be able to prove everything along the way I and mean, not make a leap of faith. You need to be able to say, to point to evidences and to know what they are. And I would read him in college and think, well, I can't do that. I don't, know if, I don't know if I buy all the evidence that he's laying out. And so how do I make sense of this? How do I be intellectually honest and yet be a Christian? And for a long time, I didn't think that I could be. I thought I wanted to be a Christian. As I said, I kept being involved in Christian community, not because I was hypocritical, but because I really wanted to be a believer. I missed faith. I had lost it and didn't know where to find it again, and I missed it. And... Um, and yet I, I just, I couldn't make sense of it all. And if I was really honest with myself, I didn't believe. And, um, so that's intellectual doubt. Um, now because of the variety of kinds of, can I get my coffee? Because of the varying kinds of doubt and because of, um, the myriad questions that can be asked um, about Christianity, it's hard to, I would be doing you a disservice to present like an answer, to like tie something up in a nice bow and give it to you and say, this is the way that you deal with it. That I've decided is a dishonest and finally unhelpful way to deal with uh, questioning God. And anyway, as the writer David Dark says, um, questioning is sacred. And there is a, as you read, you learn there's a long tradition of questioning God that begins with Abraham and runs through all the Bible, Job, and even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see our Lord wrestling with um, uncertainties about what to do and how to understand what he's called to and these kinds of things. And so um, I don't want to just fill in the blank, um, and I don't think it's honest to do so. Um, but there are two lifelines that if you're a person who's struggling with doubt, if you feel beset by these questions, if you relate at all to the experience that I described, then um, I want to encourage you to grab on to both of these two lifelines. If you don't, if faith comes easy for you, then, you know, God bless you. I spent years envious of people like you because I wanted to be that way. If faith does come in easy for you, then be grateful and offer these lifelines to your friends and your, your loved ones, people that you meet or are called to minister to who um, are struggling with doubt. And so they are, they're pretty simple. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's that the truest answers usually are pretty simple. Lifelines. Number one... If I asked you to come up with it, you probably would on your own. But it's companionship. It's a certain kind of companionship, though. Definitely being involved in Christian community, sharing your experience is, is the most important thing to do. And I did that all, all the way. I mean, I had it's, doubt can be a very solitary and alienating experience, for sure. Uh, but I... Um, was never too shy to reach out to people and tell people about what I was going through and asking for help. Often, though, what I would find is that people would try to tie things up in a bow and give them to me or fill in a blank for me. And although I appreciated that, um, offers a prayer um, or whatever, it, it wasn't enough. It didn't do what I think they intended for it to do. 
which was fix the problem. Um, they would offer, they would, I would sit down with a minister, or a, a minister or a friend and describe my questions. And they would say, well, you just need to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis or The Guide Who Was There by Francis Schaeffer or read Ravi Zacharias or read um, G.K. Chesterton or something like this. And um, I did. I read those books and found nuggets of wisdom, found things that were helpful. They all sounded good while I was reading them, but none of them really could face up to all the questions that I had. And um, so the read this book kind of advice um, was never as much as I needed it to be. Um, but one, uh, about uh, two or three years into this process, I'm at, I'm at CSU in Fort Collins, and someone connects me with a guy named Kyle Parker. And Kyle was a friend of a friend of a friend who was a college pastor, a new college pastor in Fort Collins who was, who was launching a new college ministry on the campus at CSU. And so Kyle and I made a coffee date. We sat down, and I just sort of opened up and told him about my experience of doubt. And I probably talked for half an hour, 45 minutes. And at this time, at CSU, I had declared myself an English major, so I'm reading literary theory and modern, postmodern philosophy. And so my questions were very specific and bewildering, and I didn't even really know how to form them sometimes. And... Um, Kyle listened to me, and then he sat back, and I grabbed my notebook and my pen because I expected him to tell me some books that I needed to read that would solve my problem. Because, again, that's what I was used to people doing. And I wasn't bitter about that. I appreciated it, even though I was skeptical that it would actually work. So I prepared for him to give me some answers. And Kyle was silent for an awkward moment, and then he said, Look, Patton, I, um, I don't have any idea how to answer the questions that you're asking. He said, I think that... Probably someone does. I'm sure they're really smart Christian men and women doing good scholarship all over the world. And I'm sure, I mean, you're not the first person to think of these questions. You're not that smart. And so um, he said, but I don't know. I don't know. And he said, in fact, I don't really think that if I did know, I'd want to give you the answers. He said, I think you need to go through this struggle. And... He said, I'm, I can't promise you that I can help you get through this, but I can promise you that I'll go through it with you. He said, I'll suffer with you. I'll share in your suffering. And um, if you want someone to feel your pain and to cry with you over this kind of stuff, I'm your man. And it was a really important moment for me. I never forgot his words, dedicated myself to him. I mean, he and I, he married my wife and I, and, and he and I would be friends forever. Um, and I didn't even know him at this point, but it was a promise of fellowship and of sharing and suffering that now I understand that it's very Christ-like. Um, this is part of what Christians do. We share in one another's suffering. We don't try always just to fix problems. Um, we share in each other's suffering. Think of Mother Teresa. She's the great 20th century witness to this issue. She didn't fix Calcutta. She couldn't heal every disease or solve the, pro the problems of poverty there. But she lived with those people for decade after decade after decade and shared in their sufferings. Um, and that happened to me every couple years. God would throw me that lifeline um, throughout my 20s and give me someone like Kyle um, who would say something like that to me. 
I was at a conference one time in Wisconsin where I was dealing with a new set of questions that seemed more debilitating than any that I had asked before. And I met a guy who, who someone told me at this conference, this is, this is this guy from Yale and he's brilliant and he's, you know, he'll, he'll fix this for you. And, you know, I sort of, in my foolishness, would continue to believe that that was possible. And anyway, this guy did the same thing. He said, let's go for a walk. And we walked and talked and um, he shared it, the pain of these things with me and we've been friends ever since. Um, so companionship. The next lifeline, the second one, is called, I call, Restoring the Bible. Now, there's a lot of talk. There has been a lot of talk in Christian ministry and um, theological circles for the last two, two decades, really, about thinking of the Bible in terms of... A, Thinking of the Bible as a collection of stories, remembering that it's an anthology, that there's lots of different kinds of literature. There's poetry and there's history, and um, there are letters, and, and um, letting the Bible be what it is as literature because it speaks to us in different ways than if we read it just as a newspaper report of, or data of things that we need to believe. And so this issue of restoring the Bible means lots of different things. Um, and that conversation, again, has been happening for a while. Some of it I think is very helpful, and some of it is less so. Um, but I'm going to explain to you one aspect of this that has been immensely helpful for me in helping reestablish and rebuild my faith. Um, and it's basically storying in the sense that it, stories remind you that truth can be, um, um, truth is lived. Truth happens within the context of human people human bodies. Truth is embodied in that sense. Um, and any time we begin to deal with truth in an abstract way, we, we um, depersonalize truth, which is always dangerous because truth happens in people. God showed this in the most powerful way possible by embodying himself and becoming human, which I'll say more about in a moment. Um, so any way that we can force ourselves to reimagine the ways in which these narratives actually happened through people, that this didn't fall out of the sky the way the Book of Mormon has, was believed to, just appeared in golden tablets, or the way that Muslims believe that Muhammad was in a trance writing the scriptures that became the Quran. The Bible isn't that way. The Bible is very honest about its history. It's messy. Um, because lots of humans writing lots of different kinds of uh, stories from different places and different cultures and different eras being gathered together in the third century. And first, yourself to remember that as you read the text and learning as much as you can about where it came from, where different parts of it came from and how they were generated can help you get a new angle on truth and see it for the magical, sort of mysterious, wonderful, instructive uh, thing that it is. Um, as a literature scholar, we often um, we do this with novels and with plays, right? We'll think about Shakespeare when he wrote Othello. What were the economic conditions he was living in that year that he worked on Othello? What was happening in the king's court um, politically? 
Where, what was happening with Charles Dickens when he wrote um, Great Expectations? Literature scholars do this all the time as a matter of course to try to get a fuller sense of um, what this book might mean and what motivated it. Well, when we do this with the Bible, it's, it's just as illuminating. Um, so go back to, let's go back to Genesis 1. Where does Genesis 1 come from? Like what motivated that telling of the story of creation? It didn't fall out of the sky. Moses or whomever wasn't in a trance writing. That's not what our tradition has taught us. Um, but where did it come from? We don't know as much as we'd like to know about this, but um, here's one account of um, the generation of something like Genesis. The Israelites, as you know from hearing stories about or reading the Old Testament, were people who were living in pretty constant struggle. And a lot of their history, especially their early history, has to do with enslavement and being, having power taken away from them, being held in captivity, first in Egypt and later on in Babylon. They were living in captivity. They had no freedoms. Um, they had no power of their own. They had no opportunities of their own. And a lot of scholars believe that, that a lot of the Bible narratives began to be told and transposed and first written down, especially when they were in the Babylonian captivity. This, it's helpful to remember every time you open the Old Testament, was an awful, awful, awful thing for them. Think of what happened in Rwanda in the 90s with the ethnic cleansing. Read accounts of what's happening in the Congo right now, where one people group is subjugating another people group and torturing um, burning their homes and taking their women and children, killing their men. And that'll give you some idea of what the Israelites were living under when they were held captive in Babylon. Perhaps the best illustration of it comes from the Bible in Psalm 137. This is a psalm that used to terrify me and cause me to doubt because it seems so incongruous with what I understand of God. But if you read it as a depiction or a reflection of what they were suffering in Babylon, it gives you a new understanding of it. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, which is to say when we thought of our home. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And it's important to hear the sarcasm that they that they heard. They were being mocked. It would be like the desperation band being told in a mocking way to do their, um, do their, you know, their hit song on NPR or something so that, so that people could laugh at them. This kind of mocking that they were living, the songs that were the most important to them, that celebrated their God, they were forced to play so that people could laugh. And the psalmist says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. He's begging in this phrase, in this stanza, for um, consistency, begging that he'll have the fortitude that he needs to, to remain faithful to his God and to his home. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, raise it, raise it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, Happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I used to read the psalm and think, where does that bloodthirstiness come from? Happy shall he be who takes your children and kills them. 
by bashing them against the rock. It's a terrible, terrible image. But this is inspired by what they're going through. He's crying out for justice. He's saying, please, someone, God, give us liberation. Even if it means torturing our torturers, do that so that we can be free. Well, in Babylon in this era, there was a creation narrative called the Enuma Elish. Has anyone read the Enuma Elish in the English class or somewhere? No? Okay, well, then I'll get to tell you about it. Um, the Enuma Elish was the dominant foundational myth of the day in Babylon. And Genesis is also a foundational myth. When scholars use a phrase like that, they don't mean that it's untrue or that it's a fable necessarily. Most of them are. <clears throat> but it doesn't, the, word, the term myth in this case doesn't necessarily designate falsehood. It just designates a powerful story that formed a whole culture. Um, so Genesis is the foundational myth for um, Judaism. Enuma Elish was the foundational myth. It was one of many foundational myths for uh, the people of Babylon in this era. Well, one of the, the Enuma Elish, part of it is a creation story. And it tells people of that era how the world came into being, how humans were created and how the world came to be. In the Numa Elish, there are many, 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 many gods, and they're constantly fighting. It's struggle, 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 war, 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 chaos, um, constant bloodshed between the gods. There's one main god named Marduk, who a lot of the other gods ascribe power to. And Marduk decides that one way to gain a, you know, a better position in the front with this battle with other gods is to create humans, to be slaves, to help the gods. So in the Enuma Elish, at one point, just as God says, let us make man in our image, Marduk says that to the other gods. Let us make man in our image to be slaves for us. Think about this being the main story you hear growing up. The world came into being because the gods were fighting and they needed us to work for them. You know, that there's no human dignity in that story. There's humans are worth less than the dust. Um, and the gods are very, very scary beings. Confusing, at war, and really unconcerned for humans except for what humans can do for them. It's in that context that the Hebrews were telling each other this story. This story, if you read, it, if you read the Enuma Elish, which a lot of scholars think predates this, um, this story becomes a, um, a subversion of that story. It's a retelling of the powerful story that, had, that was sort of the master narrative of the day. It, taking that story, capturing it, and filtering it through the truth that had been revealed to the Hebrew people. In this story, there was one God, and he created the world out of nothing. Out of a void, he brought it to being by speaking, and he kept calling it good over and over and over again. And then he creates man in our image, which we understand as a sort of Trinitarian are in the image of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit after our likeness. Give the, men, give the man dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth. Give them dominion, which is to say, give them the earth. Let it be theirs. Let them care for it um, and cultivate it and garden it and till it and make of it what they will. And then he blesses man. And he tells him, be fruitful and multiply. I like you so much that I want more of you. I want you to fill up the whole earth. I want there to be a lot of my creation. This, think about the politics of this, right? It's a totally different 
story than than the dominant story that the Israelites were living under. And um, so they were past, they knew that there was one God, a creator God. He had begun to reveal himself to Abraham and to their forefathers centuries before they were in captivity in Babylon. So when they finally wrote down the story of the world as they believed it, they captured the nasty pieces of the dominant story of their day, and they retold it in a way that was true. When I began to think about this and read about this, it helped me understand that Genesis is not in competition with Darwin. Genesis is a grand subversion of any competing stories that make God out to be less than he is and that make us out to be less than we are. Genesis isn't just a list of historical or scientific information. It's a story that tells us who God is. It tells us the main point of Genesis is to tell us about God's character. He blesses things. He calls them good. He makes us in relation, out of him, in his image, he makes us in relationship to him. So this way of thinking, restoring the Bible, helped me totally rethink about the Bible. And it helped me see that, the, that it's not just a list of objective data that I have to somehow figure out and believe in. But it's a grand projection of human experience that I get to be a part of. And it culminates in the ultimate narrative of Jesus, um, of God becoming one of his own and living among his own, proclaiming his kingdom, and then inaugurating his kingdom in his life and his teaching and his death and then in his resurrection. And then in that moment, extending that promise to, uh, to the whole world, inviting the whole world, inviting the whole world in. Um, and there are scholars, especially this guy named N.T. Wright, who have read the gospel accounts and the teaching of Jesus in light of these old Jewish narratives like an, and the rewriting of Enuma Elish that I just explained. And, um, and when you do that, we don't have time to go into it, obviously, but when you, go, when you do that, you, the, the, the Jesus parables, I, another storyteller, by the way, is Jesus. He's always, always, I think Mark says he always spoke in parables. <clears throat> Those things come alive in all kinds of new ways when you read them in, in the light of these um, contexts. Um, and then I think that what happens when you restore the Bible in this way is that it invites you to be part of a lived and embodied faith instead of a, a mere intellectual one. So again, I encourage you, if you are someone who struggles with doubt, um, hang on to these two lifelines. This one requires putting yourself in front of people again and again and again. This one requires reflecting, imagining, asking, humbling yourself before the Bible, asking God to help you see it for all that it is, for all the many ways in which it comes alive. And it is an alive text. But to really see it for, for all the ways in which it lives and breathes, you have to submit yourself to it over and over and over again and imagine all that it can be. So hang on to these lifelines if you struggle with doubt. And if you don't, I would encourage you to offer these lifelines to your friends who do. Um, we have like four minutes, so if anyone has any questions, we can talk about your questions. Yeah, you do. Enuma, Elish, it's two words. Yeah, I'll write it down. Enuma, Elish. 
it's a series of stories. There's also the Epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the Genesis stories, the creation narrative, the Tower of Babel, the Flood, um, those same narratives happen in, in the Enuma Elish and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, but in different ways. And reading it next to the Bible, I think, is profoundly helpful. Are there any other questions? Yeah. That's how you see what? Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Well, I think that um, we just, the, I work for this website, and we just did a debate between a Christian who's an evolutionist and a Christian who's not, um, who's a more strict kind of young earth creationist. And the Christian who's an evolutionist, one of the points that he made that I thought was very interesting was how much biological research that's rooted in either Darwinian evolution or other theories of evolution um, that have produced, you know, medicine. And so there's, you know, real material goods that have helped people change lives that have come out of that. You see what I'm saying? Right. Well, there's no doubt that people waste their li- spend their lives on mere intellectual data that, that does no good for anyone. I mean, the noise of academia and the noise of media is a temptation for me and for a lot of people, for sure. So I wholly support that point. Okay, are there other, are there other questions? One more? Yeah. Not really. I think I used to, but I don't, actually. I mean, I've, I've met people from all kinds of backgrounds who have struggled with doubt, various forms of doubt, you know, emotional, experiential, intellectual. You don't necessarily need any kind of education, whether Christian or secular, especially to experience the first two. And even intellectual doubt, I mean, just if you read the scriptures, I think that questions can pop up for people, you know. Um, and so I think that the issue of doubt, I mean, if you think of it as a tool of the devil, which I do, it is, it is able to afflict just about anyone from any circumstance. Um, so, and I know people who have been Christians within secular academia who um, have, have benefited a lot from that kind of education, and Christians from Christian academia who, you know, have had similar experiences. So I think it has more to do with the person and, you know, their own sort of constitution than it does with the nature of their education or their intellect. Yeah, last one.
sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably withheld myself from doing certain things because I didn't want to be a hypocrite. And, um, but I look, in looking back, I wish I would have been more forthcoming with a lot of my questions because I find that so many people struggle with stuff. And I think as a leading with a limp um, can be a, a strength. You know, revealing your own weakness to the people that you lead can be something that is a blessing to those people. Okay, some of you need to go to church, and so I'll, I'll pray so that you can go. And then if anyone wants to talk, I'll, I'll stick around. Almighty God, creator of the universe and of all the heavens and the earth, we appreciate you. We thank you for the ways that you've revealed yourself to us. And I pray that you would uh, fill our imaginations and that you would fill our minds and um, help us to conform to your will and to the likeness of your son. I pray a blessing upon everyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.